Hello and welcome to Front Page Radio with your host, international author, broadcaster, and journalist Dan Wooding, the founder of Assist Ministries and the Assist News Service. Dan, who was born in Nigeria of British missionary parents, was raised in England and later worked for some of Great Britain's largest newspapers. He has been a journalist covering the world for some 47 years now with a focus on persecuted Christians and missions. And now, here's Dan Wooding with today's guest. Welcome to today's program, and our special guest is Keith Getty, OBE. And he and his wife, Christine Getty, um, are very much involved in calling the church around the world to rediscover the power of congregational singing. Keith is, and his wife are both from Northern Ireland, so Keith, thank you for being on the program. It's an honor. Thank you so much indeed. Keith, tell us first of all what the OBE is, because... I'm sure most Americans haven't uh, heard of this, but it's one of the honors that you can receive in Britain. What is it, and why did you receive it? It's for contribution to British to British culture, and it was given for hymn writing and music. I think it, 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 it was a nice thing. It was the first time a Christian musician has been offered it, been awarded it. So that, that was a nice honor. And I think, to be honest, it was in part my contribution music-wise to Northern Ireland, and then secondly, the fact that hymn writing it's very much part of British culture, as you know. It's, it's tied to, to Anglicanism, to the, and thus to the churches and the schools and the villages, the carol singing tradition and all those kind of things. Um, so all those, I guess, contributed to the award. How, how did you first know you uh, had been given the award? Well, you get a very, very scary letter three months beforehand <laughs> where they tell you you're going to get the award and that you must not tell anyone on fear of, on fear of painful death. <laughs> so was it hard to keep it quiet? Um, well, you just have to, you know. It's just one of those things. We, we, we told our parents, of course, and um, and our two, our, our the three vice presidents in our company. You so that was that was kind of cool, but nobody else did. So it means what, officer of the order of the British Empire? Do, do you, does that mean you can boss people around now? Well, I'm trying to get more respect from my wife and daughters, but it hasn't really worked too far. <laughs> Well, let's just uh, go back to the early days in Northern Ireland. Where, where were you born, Keith, and um, uh, when did you first get involved in, in, in hymn writing? Um, well, I, I, got, I, was, I, was, I was born just off Belfast, a nice city called Lisburn. And really, I mean, my hymn writing is very much tied to my upbringing. It was a, I grew up in a little Presbyterian church. And my parents, my mum was a piano teacher, dad was a church organist, and uh, I was involved in church life from the earliest of eight, earliest of light years, and I, you know, played music fairly fanatically. And, and you know, the, the great thing I look back on now is the power that being in, that being involved in music can have to bring us into church life is so important. We can't, if you're involved in a children's choir or involved in helping kids sing or play instruments, it is such a wonderful thing. Last month, I had this sad, I had this sad privilege of contributing to an article in the Church Times where a guy basically said his, his thesis was um, this provocative article on how the death of children's choirs killed the Church of England. And his theory <laughs> is not preaching, is not evangelism, is not moral decay of British culture, but is the fact that every time, you know, the children's choir meant kids, parents, were at best getting to hear the words of the gospel and the words of Jesus in a beautiful way, and at worst, considered the local parish church a positive contribution to the community and very much a friend rather than a stranger. And so um, so it was a fascinating... So I look back on that and I go, I'm so grateful. 
but I got to sing in kids' choirs and be involved in church life in that way. Uh, and then I went to university in your country, which is much more pagan, and I uh, <laughs> began to get challenged by people of other faiths uh, and people of no faith. And in a sense, I got an inoculation of 21st century life, i.e., I, liberal um, atheist materialism um, uh, slash narcissism, and not that everybody who is that, is that way is, is that way. Uh, and then secondly, um, world religion, and in particular Islam. And so those challenges, those challenges made me think about faith and begin to ask questions about, did I believe? And, uh, and, so, and so over time, I became more and more convinced with the Christian faith and realized that if we were to have a, a, clear, a clear, articulated understanding of what we believe um, and a deep faith that will survive and thrive and reach out to all of our friends in a way that is, that is, that is winsome and has integrity, we have to be deep believers. And part of how you're a deep believer throughout church history is in the songs that we sing. And the songs that we sing, certainly the songs that I was singing in the year 2000 in church among youth groups, were not deep. And so we thought, alongside the modern worship songs, let's also provide a catalogue of modern hymns that helps you know, build depth and meat to, to our faith. Now, probably your most famous modern hymn is In Christ Alone that you wrote with, <clears throat> is it Stuart Townend? That's uh, absolutely right. How, yeah. how, sure. did, how did that come about? Stuart was kind of my hero because he'd written How Deep the Father's Love. And then we got together, and we, we had the privilege of, of co-writing Christ alone with him. And that was really the start of that relationship. And, and I, really, I think that opened the door for us to, to write more and more of these hymns um, for the church. And, and it's just kind of grown from there. And in the year 2004, I married Christ. In the year 2005, we actually quit the music industry completely to focus entirely on writing hymns and being stewards of them. And that's what we've done ever since. T- tell us a little bit about the controversy that the... The, the hymn, Which controversy? <laughs> the In Christ Alone one. I believe one of the the hymn book people wouldn't run it unless you changed the lyrics. Oh, yeah, that was it. Well, that was that's happened a number of times over the years. People don't like the idea of the wrath of God. And, you know, the, you know, the wrath of God is being satisfied is just one of the things that happens through the cross. It's not everything, but it's, it's a very important thing. And so we chose to use that in that song. It upset, over the years, it's upset a number of liberal denominations. And... Uh, PCUSA decided to drop it from their book. Um, but this caused a little bit of controversy because it already advertised they were going to be using our hymns. And uh, so, anyway, they, they make a statement about it. They have to make a statement about it. They make a statement saying it's inappropriate for modern church music. And I was in Ireland at the time. I was in Dublin, I think, playing golf or something. But, but then it then becomes this kind of two-way argument on, on the media about, about whether the song should or should not have been in the book. And then from there, that led to somebody calling accusing us of promoting divine child abuse because we believe in, in the wrath of God, being, being satisfied in the propitiation doctrine. And then the media caught it, so Washington Post got involved, USA Today got involved, and so it became a little bit of a, a storm in a teacup. But, but it, you know what? It, it, it began a large discussion online about, about, about the gospel, which I think was a good thing, and um, so we're thankful for that. Well, Keith, tell us a little bit now about the uh, these amazing sing-alongs that you have. Well, yeah, when you have these conferences and people all yeah. over the world join well, the in. The Sing Initiative began really, uh, its inauguration was in 2014. We did, we did 13 leadership events, and I think you've been to a leadership event I've done before, and I started talking about the Christian, some of the importance of singing in church. And um, I would ask everywhere I'd go, I'd say to people, how would you describe the music in your church? Just give me a one-sentence answer. And secondly, I might say to them, 
describe the music in your church last Sunday. And uh, and then maybe and sometimes I'll even say, you know, what's the first thing you talked about at your staff meeting on Monday about church music? And in all these talks, I didn't once hear say hear somebody say, "How was the singing?" It was the weirdest thing. How did the congregation sing? Nobody would ask how the congregation sang. They had questions about music, about band, about guitars, about worship leaders, about time, about choirs and organs, about pastors to musicians, musicians to pastors. Uh, dealing with difficult people, technology, um, <laughs> current trends, all this kind of stuff. But nobody asked how to carry it. So that it really showed that our, our culture, our Christian culture, is losing its moorings in the basics of what we actually do when we get together. And so we decided, you know, since my hero was Martin Luther, and obviously in Christ alone itself was, was the mantra, of his, his mantra, but, you know, my hero is Martin Luther. I thought, well, this year we're in the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Instead of talking about Instead of talking about ecclesiology or theology or history or politics or scandal or all the things that people have been talking about with Martin Luther, why not actually talk about? At the end of the day, he was a, he was a, he was a musical monk. He was an Augustinian monk who was a musician. You know, he was he was basically a music director. That's what he was. Why not actually talk about this? Because Luther believed in the reformation of the church through the preaching and the singing of the word. He believed that people learn the scriptures by the pastor explaining what each verse means, and then people carry it out of the church by the songs they sing. It's why the Bible is 20% songs, because it would have been an anathema to Luther that somebody would be doing a 45-minute expositional Bible talk, and then at the end you'd have a kind of an emotionally titillating song, but that did not, that did not in a deep way help communicate the truths we've been talking about. Uh, so I thought, you know, what a wonderful chance to, to begin to sort of shine some light in that again. So we wrote a book called Sing, and we started a thing called the Sing Conference, which happened it was an annual event in Nashville, and it and it was it got a phenomenal response. And so we're going around the country doing just sort of single worship events, worship summits, where we just are, are talking about the subject of congregational singing, just discussions around the country, and then as I said, building towards the annual conference in Nashville each year. Now I'm just trying to encourage people as individuals as families and as churches, to think a little bit more about what we sing. The the modern worship thing, I've noticed, um, I have a friend called Rick Wakeman, who I'm sure you know, and we had had him on the show recently, but he was telling me that he's looked at a lot of modern worship music, and there are certain words that you have to put in, like, he is worthy, you are worthy. And all of a sudden, there are all these little key words. They, they don't seem to mean an awful lot, but you have to work them into that because, uh, you know, the guitars need to join in and that. And he, he was quite skeptical of a lot of the modern-day worship music. I mean, what are your thoughts about them? Well, I'm not here, I'm not here to criticize what other people do. I'm here to say, you know, Let's, let's, Martin Luther looked at what old te- the Old Testament, how the Old Testament viewed singing. He looked at how the New Testament viewed singing, both the early church and then the, the promise of heaven, which is, revel- which is really a liturgy of worship in itself, in Revelation. And then he looked at the church fathers throughout history. And there were three conclusions that Luther came to in terms of, in terms of one, was, one was we need songs that are rich and deep in their theological and their biblical content. It is going to shape... What we sing shapes how we think, how we pray. It shapes our memories, shapes our imaginations. It shapes our hearts and feelings and emotional life. And it shapes our prayers, our words, and that's really every part of life. So we need to be singing deep songs. Authentic worship ultimately 
is not getting an emotional feeling, but is singing authentic, an authentic big picture of the God of the Bible. Um, and so that's where it begins. It begins with the truth of God. And in the same way as the Psalms talk about God being a God of justice and wrath and and uh, who is holy and who is a judge and who is almighty and who cannot tolerate sin, we also talk about him as a God of peace and a God who loves compassion, a God who leads us like a shepherd and knows us like a friend. So, And so so our song should have that wide breadth of things. It's not simply enough to say, you know, we, we, he, we delight he delights in our praise, or he's loving in some kind of nondescript way. The Psalms don't wait, wait there. The Psalms are, take us a lot deeper, and as, as the Scripture, as does truth. So we, we've got to make sure that our songs are filled with truth. Secondly, we've got to make sure that they're joining the whole body of believers together. You know, when I get together, we get together as a family. I like classical music. My wife likes singer-songwriters and jazz. When we sing with our girls, we sing songs that all of us as a family can sing together, because the family is more important than one person's taste. So whether you're choosing songs or playing songs, you want to make sure those songs are joining our whole family together. And then thirdly, I think it's really important that we have songs that we carry with us through life. So modern worship songs, great. Uh, they have an important play, part to play, but let's make sure some of these songs are songs that we're able to carry with us as we go as we go forward. Now, you, you also have these Irish events as well. Can you share a bit about those? Oh, the Irish Christmas? Yes, yes. Irish Christmas. This is the season. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Um, we started these, but in the with Billy Graham in 2010, which really led to the Irish Christmas tour. It's obviously it's on PBS television. Many of you have seen it. And then this year, we were hoping to go to the West Coast this year, but with my wife expecting our fourth child, it was just too much of a strain. So we're, um, we are playing Carnegie Hall and Kennedy Center, a number of really wonderful venues. And then at Carnegie Hall this year, California's own Johnny Erickson Tato will be joining us for that, which will be exciting as well. So we're looking forward to that. Do you, do you pinch yourself, Keith, you know, coming from a, a small town there in Northern Ireland that all this has happened to you? Oh, yeah. It's, you can't believe it is. You know, and even your worst days, you can't believe the privilege of what we get to do. How do you go about writing a hymn, you know, from the start to the end? Do you, do you play around on the piano or what? I think it's hard work. I mean, you know, you're always trying. I think I think it's about always wanting to write something new. You know, the thing about it is, if you're choosing a song for Sunday, you want songs that are rich and deep, but they've also got to be great songs. You know, if you're leading your church on a Sunday, you know, you know, the great songs sing well. You know, so so I write a lot, but very few of my songs get released because we want to wait till we've got something that really, really helps the church. Because if you introduce new songs, it, it affects your congregation singing in a negative way. So we want to make sure when we do that they are powerful. Now tell me, on the personal side now, your lovely wife, how did you meet her, and when? You know, where did you get married? Well, Christian and I got married in 2004, and we've, um, we've never had a night apart. We've been 13 years just doing stuff together and having a laugh, and we've got, we got our fourth beautiful daughter on the way. So, so it's an exciting season, and we're looking very much forward to that. Here, here's a hypothetical. If you could ever actually meet Martin Luther... What are some of the questions you'd like to ask him? I think if I was ever to meet Martin Luther, I would first of all say thank you. I would say thank you. Thank you that after 300 years where the church wasn't allowed to sing, where Jan Hus of the Hussites was executed for, on three counts of heresy, one of which was congregational singing. You know, I would say thank you for having the courage to understand that what we sing, what we sing affects each one of us profoundly that what we sing as families is what the songs that are sung in our family homes or listened to in our family homes and sung passively 
are what binds marriages and binds children and builds children to become missionaries and transformative people. Thirdly, the, the act of singing to one another on a Sunday is what builds a family, which is what makes the whole idea of worship wars so utterly ridiculous, because it actually isn't about building songs. It isn't about building songs that help market your church or reach a demographic. No, it's songs that actually build your people generationally to love each other and grow, grow in faith with each other. Um, so I would say thank you to him for his courage in congregational singing. I would say thank you to him for his courage and and his courage and passion for the Word of God, for the Gospel of Jesus, for the reality of the spiritual world that we live in, and for his passion for the Church. And and I think I'd say thank you to him for his love for music. He was a musical fanatic. He loved loved beauty. He loved music. He loved celebration. He loved Christmas, actually, would you believe? Huge (laughs) fan of Christmas. So um, all of this stuff is just extraordinary. Yeah, I think he was a lover of life. You know, many of the later reformers and Puritans were much more uh, somber people. Luther was not. He was a he was essentially a party animal, I guess, but a <laughs> but a but a, but a redeemed party animal. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any other of those church fathers that you'd love to sit down and talk to? Well, I think you know all of us. I, mean, I would learn from any of them. You know, the great thing is. The great thing about being in Christ's family is that, you know, we're all connected to one another. We can all learn from each other. I think there's a real danger in our churches at the minute that there's an obsession with youth. I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a deep-seated paranoia that we might lose the youth. Um, but either way, I don't think it's solved by, by catering to them too much. And so, you know, I, I think there's a lot to learn from older people. So in the same way as I want to learn from the older people in my church, I, I think I want to learn from, from church fathers. I think when it comes to music, you know, Luther was my hero, and then by extension, Bach was my hero. So um, um, I, I, I think if I had to pick two, I think I'd pick those two guys. But it, it's really remarkable what you know, what the, the transformation that was positive that Luther gave. Of course, Luther did many things later in his life that were not so impressive, which only remind us of his humanity. But but for his stand and for helping all of us sing and and, and reestablishing uh, the holy privilege of congregational singing, you know, I, I, we, we, we are all in his debt. When when you were younger, did you ever watch Songs of Praise on the BBC where they have these communal singing things? Well, we're very involved with Songs of Praise, so um, <laughs> so I have to say we're, we're we're very big fans of the show. Tell it's me. an interesting reflection of British culture because it's the inversion of America. You know, in America, X million go to church on a Sunday, but very few of them sing hymns. In Britain. There's a tiny people, many people go to church on a Sunday, and three times as many watch songs of praise because <laughs> the British culture loves hymns. You know, so it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting window still to, to 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 bring Christianity, and the show itself is beautifully made. So we enjoy we enjoy recording a lot of our songs for that for that show. So you you've been on several of the programs then. I think we've been on thirteen in the last year. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. Because a friend of mine was the producer of one, I think they did at Wembley Stadium, where they had about 100,000 people singing. That must have been a pretty amazing thing to watch. But it, it's one of these programs that sort of, uh, you know, you get the impression that every church in Britain is full and they're all singing their hearts out, but at least the music's getting over there. When you, when you do these, do you do them live or are they pre-recorded or what? No. We record for three days, pre-record with them, lots of different things, and they place them into shows as the year goes on. What, what's the future now? You, I mean, you, God's blessed you in an, a pretty amazing way, Keith. And by the way, we're talking with Keith Getty, 
Uh, Keith uh, is uh, the website, I believe, is www.gettymusic.com. Um, when people go on your website, Keith, what 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 do they uh, what will they see? Um, well, the, the the website can tell you all about the Sing Project. I mean, the book was written as a book that we hope families, church leaders, worship ministries, choirs, and indeed whole congregations will buy. It's Lifeway kindly have made it available insanely cheaply. Robin and Holman, this is part of Lifeway, made it made it very very accessible to people, so people can buy the book for cheap. If they buy 20 copies, it's a normal price book, but this special day, we, if you buy 20 copies for your church, we want churches to read it and think about how singing affects, learn, remind yourselves how we sing, but realize how it affects each of our spiritual growth and spiritual development, how it really affects every part of our family life, how it affects every part of our church life, and how it is a, a witness to those around us. Now, when when did you decide to come over to the states? Was it initially just a, a one-off visit, and then you it, things began to happen? Um, well, we wrote the, the Heaven Christ Alone to us. I once wrote in the hymns. We, we visited in two thousand five and moved over in two thousand six, and it's been just sort of a gradual gradual journey since then. What what's it like living in Nashville? Is it an exciting place? Nashville's wonderful. It's a, it's it's a stimulating town uh, with a lot of creative people. And we enjoy it, but we also enjoy going home to Ireland in the summer, and I think that keeps us kind of, I guess, more more grounded. But all our families are back there, so we enjoy that. Oh, that's great. I, I always remember the, and I may have shared this with you, that going over once to um, Northern Ireland there to interview Georgie Best's sister, who was in the Brethren. She was very strict, and she didn't approve of her brother. Georgie Best was one of the most famous Manchester United soccer players there, and... Uh, um yeah it was just interesting to to see what is going on now there and i know you don't want to talk about the politics but are you at least encouraged that things are moving in the right direction in northern ireland i don't know enough to comment so we've been speaking with keith getty keith what would you like to say to the audience about um to sum all this up you've got a minute or so what what can you tell us that will encourage us to get involved in congregational singing? Well, I think, I think we, we, we sing, first of all, we sing because God has commanded us to sing. Secondly, we sing because he's created all of us with voice boxes. Whether, whether we're good singers or bad singers is irrelevant. One of, one of the most radical witnesses in congregational singing is, is, is my guitar player's father, who, who can't even sing in tune, but he sings passionately and loves the importance <laughs> of singing. And thirdly, we sing... We sing because, you know, the love of Christ compels us to sing. The Irish missionary Amy Carmichael used to say, how can I keep from singing? We can. <laughs> Martin Luther said, said, he said, said that the good news of Christ tunes our hearts to sing. He was the first person to use that phrase, tunes our heart to sing, that come they find of every blessing later, later adopted. And so, you know, we, we, all of us sing. We sing, we, we, to not sing is disobedience. And, um, and the Lord loves all of our voices, whether we are, whether we're an opera singer or whether we've got a PhD in engineering and are very calm and think, and think music is frankly for, for people who are like emotionally a little bit unstable. <laughs> it really doesn't matter. The Lord loves. So that's the first thing. We have to understand that it is a holy privilege and it is an act of obedience. It's the second most common command in scripture. That's how important it is. But after that, I think we have to look at it and go, you know, we are living in the most exciting generation to be Christians, but we also live in the most challenging generation to be Christians. And we, I, I don't think, I don't think 
the idea of nominal Christian will even exist in a generation. So as we look to our children and our grandchildren, and even to our own lives and what lies ahead, let's make sure that we're letting, making sure the Word of God plants itself deep in us. And part of how we plant it deeply is singing deep songs that we can carry with us through life that remind us of the deep, complex, but beautiful truths of God. And family, and this is a big one for me, you know, we always encourage leaders and say, you have no business leading people in worship if you're not leading your family. And saying the Puritans didn't let, let, even let a man uh, take communion or take the Lord's Supper if he was not praying and singing with his family every day, because that is his first duty above everything else. You know, I remember the time I met John MacArthur and asked his advice in, on being a parent. And he said, well, fill your house, first of all, with songs of the Lord. Before he talked about doctrine, before he talked about teaching, before he talked about literature or theology or anything else, he said, fill your home with songs of the Lord, the kitchen, the living room. Fill your car so that you're constantly singing, so that your, your, your joy and your emotions and your mind and your memory is constantly being filled with verses sung beautifully. Um, and, and it is so crucial. And then finally, finally, make sure our congregations, when we think about music, or if we're a musician, if we're a pastor, whatever it is, make sure, we, make sure we sing to one another as part of our love for each other in our congregations. And let's make sure when we think about our church's music, we stop caring so much about what's playing on the radio or what our friend is doing or the church on the road is doing or whose personal taste is what, but that we care about being family and singing to one another and asking each Sunday, how did our congregation sing? You know, there's a British, think, thinking of yourself, it reminds me of a British historian who was a revivalist historian who was once asked, will revival ever come back to Britain? And he said, well, can you sing? He says, as he looked at the history of revivals, the most common thing is how the spirit engenders people to want to sing, and then how singing itself becomes attractive to everyone else. And uh, we all know, of course, that singing can't save us, but it does point us irresistibly to the one who can. Keith Getty, it's been a delight as always. Uh, www.gettymusic.com. Uh, the book there is, is, what's it called again, Keith? Sing. Sing, that's a hard one to remember. And I want to thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you so much indeed. Always a pleasure. You have been listening to Front Page Radio with international journalist Dan Wooding. If you would like a free subscription to the Assist News service, log on to www.assistnews.net. And if you would like to write to Dan, send an email to assistnews at aol.com. Tune in again for another edition of Front Page Radio on this same station.